Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our series of reflections into the book of Revelation, a study that has us going through uh, the book of Revelation verse by verse. I mean, really, the only way to properly understand just not the book of Revelation, but any book in the Bible is to go through it verse by verse so as to be able to appreciate the rich context that each verse has, because only then can we truly get at what the author is trying to convey. I mean, if you were to take a step back and really think about it, any story or or any novel you read, you never just start in the middle of it, right? No, you start at the beginning, or you never start in chapter two or chapter three. No, you start in chapter one and And to understand then uh, chapter 2 and 3, you have to start with chapter 1. So this is why we are going through this altogether unique book, verse by verse, so as to appreciate the whole of the message that comes to us from John the Seer. Okay, in our time together yesterday, we were talking about the seven spirits in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, consequently our need to reflect upon the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want to go back to a 6th century Latin church father by the name of Aprengius. He, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, interprets the seven spirits in relationship to what great Old Testament passage? Isaiah chapter 11. It is there where traditionally we get the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is what the great Latin church father had to say. Here, the seven spirits are introduced, which are one and the same spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, who is one in name, sevenfold in power, invisible and incorporeal, and whose form is impossible to comprehend. The great Isaiah revealed the number of its sevenfold powers when he wrote, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, that through understanding and wisdom he might teach that he is the creator of all things. The spirit of counsel and might, who conceived these things that he might create them the spirit of knowledge and piety, who governs the creation with piety by the exercise of his knowledge and whose purposes are always according to mercy, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, by whose gift the fear of the Lord is manifested to rational creatures. This description reveals the sacred character of the spirit who is to be worshipped. So here we are talking about the one great spirit, okay, that is God himself in his sevenfold power, that he dispenses to us in our confirmation those great seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I know we touched upon that last time, and here we have this great Latin church father speaking to these seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, piety, and of course, fear of the Lord. And when we talk about fear of the Lord, we are not talking about a fear that has us turning our head away from God, no, a fear that is about an awe and a reverence. Uh, that is what this great spiritual gift evokes. Now, that being said, 
in our time together last time, we were talking about uh, Adam and the decision that was before him. And we put it within the context of heaven, right? That in the end, heaven is about a sharing in the life of the Trinity. And so we asked the question, what does the Trinity do? If heaven is about sharing in the life of the Trinity, what does heaven do? What does this look like? Well, the answer is, quite simply, love. The life of the Trinity is eternal, life-giving love. The Father, as I noted yesterday, out of love, pours his life into the Son. And the Son, the image of the Father, gives himself back to the Father in this life-giving love. The love that the Father and Son share is what we call the Holy Spirit. This is not because God is some kind of egomaniac, always telling himself, I am so good. You know, I love me so much. Man, what a great God I am. No, God is love because God is three persons who share all that they have, holding nothing back. Again, love given, love received, and love shared. And so heaven itself is entering into the life of perfect love. There we will experience and share in what true love is all about. This is our fulfillment. All the letdowns, all the brokenness of this life, in the end creates a yearning in us to experience that perfect love, which we are just unable to find on earth. Rest assured, my friends, what awaits us in heaven is that fulfillment of the deepest longing, the deepest desire that has been put into our heart. And so, within the context of Adam and Eve, and as we were talking about it yesterday, what was going on in the garden, Adam had to die because that is what life-giving love looks like when it is offered by a human being. This is why Jesus had to die. It is not because God likes death. My friends, what Jesus simply did in his human nature is what he does from all eternity as the Son of God. He pours out his life in love. Essentially, the God-man reveals the inner life of the Trinity. We gain a profound access into what the inner life of the Trinity looks like in his death. Unconditioned love. Absolute and unconditioned love. So Adam had to learn to embrace this life-giving love because that was what he was called to embrace in heaven. Now, this is more or less where we left off yesterday. So this is where we will pick up. So offering his life and sacrificial love was Adam's calling. It was his vocation. Mindful that the word vocation coming from the Latin vocatio literally means calling, right? His calling is our calling. The calling to love. To love each and every moment for what it is. The present moment as a gift unto us that we might love God in that moment and in turn give glory to God in that moment. Whatever that moment might be at work, in a conversation, so on and so forth. So considering Adam's call to love sacrificially, it should not surprise us that Genesis uses priestly terms to describe Adam's role in the garden. For example, when God tells Adam to till and keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, he is giving him priestly duties over the course of our programming here on Seeds of Truth 
we have touched upon this very point. If you're to go into the Hebrew in Genesis 2.15, we read that the words till and keep are in fact priestly words. The Hebrew word for till is abad or abudah. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar or shaman. These are used throughout the Old Testament to describe priestly service. So the garden itself is described as a sanctuary since it is there that Adam ministers. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Huh? That the Garden of Eden is actually a sanctuary where God is to abide? A priestly sanctuary where a priest man ministers? Priesthood and sonship are connected in the Old Testament. To be a son requires life-giving love. Instead of offering an animal, a son learns to offer his life. Adam is also described as a what? King, having what? Dominion. Adam, therefore, was a priest king. We, too, are called to be priest kings who give to God everything over which we have dominion, our lives, our possessions, all that we are in sacrificial love. Next time you go home, look around you, your house, your car, your food, your children, your garden, all of that is to be an offering to God, mindful that you are a priest king who is to exercise priestly dominion. And again, this is all within the context of sacrifice because priest and sacrifice, one and the same thing here, right? The book of Revelation combines these concepts that we are talking about now. What does Revelation 1 verses 5 to 6 state? Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, martyr, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father. So Jesus is the firstborn who makes himself a sacrifice as a martyr, freeing us by his blood and making us a kingdom of priests. And again, to say that is to simply enter into this baptismal identity that we have been given, an identity that is rooted in sacrifice. It is a wonderful thing to really think about how God wishes us to take everything that we are and everything that we possess and give it to him. I think it helps us better understand Paul's words, huh? When he says, pray without ceasing, because then we can essentially, in and through our offering, pray without ceasing, right? Because no matter what you're doing, again, whether it be what you're doing in the workplace, what you're doing at, at home, what you're doing at a party, all of your work, all of your relationships, at any time and every time, could and should be offered to God. So throughout the book of Revelation, my friends, we will continue to find this link between uh, martyrdom, witness, being a child of God, priesthood, kingship, sacrifice. These are golden threads, if you will, right, that bring this beautiful book together. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every one who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Whew. That is a rich verse, my friends. I don't think we might be in this for a little bit. You know, in verse 7, John alludes to two passages. First, Jesus coming on the clouds certainly evokes 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, what? Comes in the clouds to receive the kingdom. He then turns and gives it to the saints who persevered through persecution. We will talk about this more in several verses down the road. The reference to those who will wail upon seeing him who they pierced comes from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. That reads as follows. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him who they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Oh, that is a provocative image. In Zechariah 12, the people look upon the death of the Davidic king and mourn for him. Because of this, the people repent and sin is cleansed from the land. God comforts the inhabitants of Jerusalem and restores his people to himself. You know, it's, it would be good to hit the pause button here because ultimately what's going on here is a cleansing that comes by way of repentance. Is not repentance at the heart of the gospel? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. We will be talking about the kingdom of God in great detail throughout this book. We should always see it in the light of repentance. This call we have to be contrite for our sin and firmly resolve to change. A change for the better, a change that involves a new direction in life, a new way, a way that has been paved by Jesus Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So John combines two passages that both speak about the Messiah's victory over evil and the coming messianic kingdom. And as we will see, Christ is the Son of Man, about whom Daniel prophesied. He brings about the restoration of God's kingdom. Likewise, we see Jesus is the Davidic king who is pierced in Zechariah. People from all nations will look upon Jesus, pierced for our sins, and they will wail on account of him and repent. Mm. And reflecting upon this, Dr. Michael Barber makes note of uh, the gentleman who, after seeing Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, repented and confessed to an unsolved murder. I remember reading that story and thinking to myself, what grace and power is upon that movie that it would actually move us to change our lives so dramatically that our whole lives would change on the drop of a dime. That movie was anointed, and I know it changed so many lives. Why? To look upon the corpus on the cross, the body on the cross, is to take the first step to better understand Christ crucified. We too need to confess and repent, for indeed we are all responsible for Christ's death since he died for all of our sins. As I say that, many of you are thinking to yourself, well, I know that, of course. But do we forget that? The more deeply we contemplate Christ's sacrifice, the more deeply we repent. We should add, there is also a deeper Eucharistic meaning to this passage. Just as the Son of Man comes in the cloud, Christ comes to the church in every Eucharist. My friends, pay close attention here. <laughs> Since the Old Testament often depicts the Holy Spirit in terms of the cloud of presence, 
Certainly we see this in Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. We see this in Sirach, chapter 24. Jesus coming in the clouds can also be understood and should be understood as his coming in the Spirit. Now what's interesting again is, what is the Greek word for coming? Parousia, which best translates as presence. Christ's coming, therefore, is found in his real presence in the Eucharist, where he comes to us in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? The relationship between coming, presence, and Eucharist is all there. You read these passages in light of John 6, man, there's a rich study for you. We'll have to take that up sometime. (laughs) All right. How about Revelation chapter 1, verse 8? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The description here of Jesus as the one who was and is and is to come certainly recalls the name God reveals to Moses, right? Yahweh. Yahweh is best translated as either I am who I am or I will be what I will be. In his gospel, John recounts how Jesus applied this name to himself, right? John chapter 8, verses 58 to 59. John chapter 18, verse 6. I am who I am. So John is, is again emphasizing that Jesus is God. He's not some lower God, but the one true God Almighty. And another point that could be easily missed, it really encourages a reflection upon the importance of the essence of God, who is love. I am who I am. It's about my presence that fulfills your deepest longing. You know what's always fascinating to me about the book of Job is that he was an orator. He was an inquisitor. He was someone who would always ask questions. And was he finally satisfied when his questions were answered? Nope. He was satisfied when he got the answer, answer, capital A, when he found himself in God's presence. We see the same thing with St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians, if not the greatest theologian in the history of the church, who gives us the great Summa Theologica, this great work where he explored the faith in an unprecedented way. At the end of his life, he kind of looked at it, and in God's presence, he said, oh, this is nothing but straw. Now, our Lord appeared to him and said, You have written well of me. What would you have of your reward, Thomas? And in his presence, what did St. Thomas say? Only you, Lord. You see, there's something about God's presence. If it's Job, if it's St. Thomas Aquinas, there's something about God's presence that satisfies our deepest longing. And I talk about this because to reflect upon the Almighty is to reflect upon the one who said, I am who I am, I will be what I will be. I am love, come to me, and I will fulfill your deepest longing. Come to me in my presence in the blessed sacrament. Amen. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 reads, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As I've noted before, this certainly highlights John being the apostle. It is important to point out that John is sharing 
in the same persecution his readers are experiencing in the Asia Minor. What persecution could this be? I mean, since there is no evidence that Christians outside of Rome were persecuted by Nero, it would be very unlikely that this implies some sort of imperial assault on Christianity. Rather, it is probable that the general population throughout the Roman Empire, following the example of Caesar and and the policy of their capital city, began to persecute Christians at the local level. Likewise, certain Jews who looked to the Jerusalem leaders for guidance would have begun to persecute Christians in the Gentile territories where they lived. Certainly, Paul, once Saul, was one of those Jews, right? So John's mention that he shares in the kingdom is a sharing of suffering. So it's interesting. I mean, John's mention that he shares in the kingdom is often overlooked. What is this kingdom that he shares with his readers? Well, let us consider. What was the theme of our Lord's ministry? There's one clear answer. The kingdom. Jesus spoke more often about the kingdom than about anything else. It is so frequent in the Gospels that we might even have the tendency to overlook it, kind of like the word the or a or as, right? Consider Matthew 4:17. Picking up the theme of John the Baptist, Jesus begins his own ministry with the words, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." How about Matthew 4:23, where Matthew describes Jesus's message as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6, 10, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, what? Thy kingdom come. Many of the parables begin with what? The kingdom of heaven may be compared, dot, 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 right? And of course, in Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus leaves Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The theme isn't limited to the Gospels. The book of Acts begins by explaining that Jesus spent 40 days after the resurrection doing what? Speaking about the kingdom of God. Then throughout the book of Acts, the message of the kingdom is proclaimed. The book concludes with Paul in Rome preaching what, my friends, in chapter 28, verse 31, but the kingdom of God. So what exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, we should first say that it's the kingdom of God. God swore to give to David. Indeed, the Old Testament calls the Davidic kingdom in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, the kingdom of the Lord. In 2 Samuel 7, in the great covenant between David and God, we we read of the everlasting kingdom. Remember that story? Nathan the prophet is in the midst of David, and he speaks of this great everlasting covenant, a covenant that would be a kingdom covenant. Through this kingdom, God would fulfill all his Old Testament promises, extending his covenant blessings to all mankind, my dear friends, forever. However, as many of us know, after Solomon died, the kingdom in its historical situation was split in half and eventually crushed in 586 BC. The prophets announced that the kingdom would be restored by the Messiah, the son of David. And of course, all of this is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, who announced in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that Jesus did not come to abolish the old covenant, the old kingdom, but my friends, you know, to fulfill it. And now this 
kingdom is not an earthly political power like so many Jews in the first century would have thought. It's God's covenant family. It is present in the church under the successor of Peter who is given the keys of the kingdom. Through the church's sacramental life, mankind is brought back into God's family. Moreover, we should say, as we've been developing this liturgical context, the kingdom is especially present at the Eucharistic celebration since it is there that the king is truly present. So the kingdom comes to us in three categories. Yes, it is regal, as I just spoke to it, but it is also in primarily Christological, Christ-centered, and mystical. Have you not heard it said that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and he should reign in our hearts? So the kingdom of God abides within us. Every time we receive the Eucharist, in the most profound way, does the King of kings dwell inside of our hearts. And this is mystical. What is mystical? Well, generally speaking, when we talk about the mystical, we talk about those supernatural experiences we have in the natural realm. Those superordinary experiences we have that we just cannot explain in ordinary life. And out from those encounters with the divine, we have this new keen conviction that there's something greater out there. And it leads us asking new questions. And those new questions lead us to new beginnings. Suddenly, we no longer look at this or that as some random thing. No, we just don't look at it. We look into it, through it. You look at a piece of art, you never just look at it. You contemplate its meaning. You look through it, seeking the deeper meaning. That is the mystical life. That is the life that takes shape and form when the Spirit of God is inside of you and you now see each and every encounter as not some concurrence of random events, but the intervention of God in time. What did Albert Einstein once say? God does not roll dice, my dear friends. There are no such things as coincidences, but God incidents. Incidents that reveal the glory of God. And more than just incidents, but very real concrete experiences. This is what the kingdom of God is about. So the kingdom of God comes to us in the regal, the Christological, that is quite simply Christ. Christ is the kingdom of God and the mystical. The spirit desires to dwell within our hearts, to transform our interior life, that we may reveal the presence of the kingdom of God in the external life, in all that we do. And I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. And so let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.